everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay, I suppose. I had a uh, somewhat unsettling experience at the grocery store the other day. I was browsing the reduced-priced-for-clearance condiments, like you do, when I stumbled across a product that made me uncomfortable for reasons I had difficulty putting my finger on at first. I guess about a year ago, Heinz released a product that is pre-mixed ketchup and mayonnaise that they call Mayo Chup. It's not the product itself that I find unnerving. It's a sauce that I've had before, under a bunch of different names. I believe in this region it's usually called fry sauce. And it's fine. It's not even the somewhat awkward portmanteau of mayo chup that I find disquieting. Although as the person who coined the phrase billionaire do well, I feel confident saying that there is a better portmanteau for mayonnaise and ketchup than mayo chup. So I did some soul searching and... It took me a while to realize this, but I think I'm just fundamentally suspicious of anyone jamming together two things that I already like to create a third thing. I'm pretty sure it all goes back to when I was 11 years old and watched The Shining for the first time. I've always liked Winnie the Pooh. I've always liked Piglet. But when you put them together, you end up getting the man in the horrifying pig bear outfit from that two-second scene in The Shining when Shelley Duvall is running through the hotel, and that two-second clip has been giving me nightmares my entire life. So, be careful with your portmanteaus. And just mix your own mayonnaise and ketchup together. You'll probably save some money. And that way you won't risk accidentally creating some kind of psychosexual nightmare fuel. Unless that's something you're into, in which case, mayo chup ahoy. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. Let's get into some different nonsense. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Bernie DeLeo. Batman patrols Gotham City while Superman guards his metropolis. The king of summarizing by Diddy, that hub sure can sling a synopsis. Huh. Thanks, Bernie. I don't know about king of summarizing by Diddy. Maybe Marquise. Ooh, or Viceroy. Anyway, New Teen Titans Volume 2, Number 6, March 1985. Titans Mania! Written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, drawn by Dan Jurgens, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call Starfire, Cyborg, Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Lilith, Jericho, Wally West, Aqua Girl, And Aqualad! Hooray! Previously in the New Teen Titans, 
A few months ago, the Titans encountered an amnesiac alien angel who formed a deep and instant bond with the team's resident red-haired and occasional psychic Lilith. Lilith disagreed with Nightwing's decision that the winged wanderer should be imprisoned for no particular reason, so naturally the Titans assumed that their temperamentally telepathic teammate was being mind-controlled. Our heroes acted on this unfounded assumption and attacked the extraterrestrial stranger. Unfortunately, the Titans' unprovoked assault proved to be unwarranted, as Lilith was not being mentally coerced by her forgetful feathered friend. The flying alien was worried that Lilith might be injured if the Titans kept chasing him around and hitting him, and also, he didn't like being chased around and hit, so he fled the city. Upset at her teammate's arrogant decision-making process, Lilith quit the team. The intermittently intuitive ingenue eventually returned, though, alongside the recently retired rapid runner Wally West, aka Kid Flash, to aid our titular teenagers as they battled to prevent Raven's extra-dimensional demonic bad dad Trigon from conquering the universe. Although our heroes were ultimately victorious, their triumph was not without cost. As a consequence of the epic struggle, the team's headquarters was left a smoldering stump of wreckage that was probably filled with demon poop. Raven was missing and possibly dead, Jericho was in a coma, and the remaining Titans were left reeling from the psychological trauma of Trigon forcing them to confront their greatest fears. Gadzooks! To what exotic environs did Lilith's amnesiac alien angel Amigo abscond? How much will it cost to repair a smashed-up T-shaped skyscraper that a four-eyed demon used as a toilet? And after defeating Trigon, what new devastating threat will the Titans face next? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Pendleton, Oregon. About three million dollars. And the adulation of a grateful public, a shadowy mayoral assistant, and unlicensed wig vendors. The city of New York is super grateful that the Titans rescued the city from Trigon, even though no one remembers exactly what happened. A ticker tape parade is thrown for the triumphant teen adventurers. Although, the comic is explicit that it's confetti that is being thrown, not actual ticker tape, because Wall Street stopped using ticker tape to track stock prices back in the 60s. I'm glad they included this as an aside, because A, it's fun to learn things, and two, it implies that in the 80s, Wall Street did still use a lot of confetti in their day-to-day -day operations. Probably for office birthday parties and such. And maybe announcing mergers? Anyway, the Titans stand awkwardly on a float with an ebullient Mayor Ed Koch as they are literally paraded through the city to the delight of crowds of their appreciative new fans. Street vendors sell off-brand Teen Titan hats, wigs, and costumes. Around the country, other superheroes are interviewed, and with varying degrees of enthusiasm, offer their support and appreciation for the Titans and what they have accomplished. Beast Boy and Starfire seem delighted with the attention that they are receiving, but the rest of the team is more than a little bit uncomfortable being in the spotlight, and are anxious to return home and start working on repairing the destroyed Titan Tower. Wonder Girl in particular seems uncharacteristically irritable. When the parade ends, Mayor Koch holds a press conference, presents the Titans with the ceremonial key to the city, and tells them that his office will see to it that the city of New York will pay for any repairs to their headquarters. So that's nice. Back in the midwestern suburban town of Blue Valley, Wally West watches the parade on TV with his parents and his rad magnet-powered girlfriend Frances Kane. Wally neglected to tell his folks about his involvement in the battle against Trigon, purportedly because he doesn't want them to worry about him, but also probably because he mostly just whined and lusted after an eviled-up version of Raven, and that's not really the sort of thing you want to brag to your parents about. 
Also, apparently using his powers is maybe killing Wally, and he hasn't told them about that either. Francis takes her furtive fleet-footed boyfriend aside and is like, Look, you really need to tell your parents what's going on. It's not fair of you to expect me to be your entire emotional support network. I've still got a lot of shit going on myself. My mom thinks I'm the devil because of my magnet stuff, my dad and brother died less than a year ago, and you won't shut up about how you love slash hate slash are indifferent towards Raven. I think I need for us to take some time apart so that we can think things over. Wally responds predictably by saying, But Francis, what about me and what I want you to do? Let's recenter this conversation so that it's about my needs. I'm maybe dying, kinda, and I can't tell anybody about it because I don't wanna. So we have to stay together. Maybe it'll help if I try to explain my complicated feelings towards Raven again. Damn it, Wally! It turns out that the West family aren't the only people watching coverage of the Titans parade from afar. In Pendleton, Oregon, a familiar-looking half-naked winged alien catches a glimpse of Lilith on the TV screen in a department store. He freaks out and starts soliloquizing in his incomprehensible alien language about how he still doesn't remember shit, but he knows that he's in love with Lilith, and he needs to be near her, no matter what the other Titans have to say about it. He flies off into the sky, angrily declaring his love for Lilith. Then he stops to startle an old man who is snoozing on the porch of what appears to be an incredibly elaborate treehouse. Once the sleepy senior citizen has been thoroughly bewildered, the amnesiac alien angel again flies into the sky, again angrily declaring his love for Lilith. Okay. Back in New York, the Titans start sifting through the rubble of their destroyed former headquarters. A mysterious figure in a trench coat and fedora whose face is obscured by shadows informs them that their repair bill is over $3 million, which is more than the city is willing to pay. Despite the mayor's words to the contrary, the Titans are on their own when it comes to financing the restoration of the tower. Man, I bet in a few years the Titans will be voting for David Dinkins. Aqualad and Aquagirl swing by with one of their whale buddies to help dredge up some of the gang stuff from the bottom of the East River. Hooray! I assume that there are a couple of panels that got cut for time, which indicate that the rest of the Titans spend a few hours standing around and thinking about how rad Aqualad and Aquagirl are, but eventually the gang decides to head back to their respective homes for the night. Once again, Wonder Girl is surprisingly grumpy, and as she flies off, she questions out loud whether being a superhero is worth the trouble. Starfire flies after her and is like, Hey Donna, look, we'll all miss Aqualad. And it's natural to get depressed whenever he leaves, but is something else going on? Donna admits that she is upset, but isn't really ready to talk about it yet. It turns out, she's still kind of freaked out from when Trigon forced her to confront her greatest fear. She saw an evil version of herself murder Terry Long, and is worried that her crime-fighting might someday endanger the man she loves. On the one hand, that is a valid concern, and I get it. But on the other hand, I mean, it's just Terry. It's not like this is Howie Long we're talking about. You know, the former football player who was in those Radio Shack ads with Terry Hatcher? Wait a minute. Terry Hatcher? Howie Long? If they got married, her name could be Terry Long. And then she'd be married to Wonder Girl. I think that's how that would work. Cyborg goes home and is pestered by intrusive reporters. He pulls a Sean Penn. By which I mean he breaks one of their cameras, not that he is a humorless, abusive, self-righteous narcissist. Speaking of narcissists, Beast Boy goes home and reflects on how nice it is that he is now popular and famous. 
Dick, Lilith, and Coriander hang out in Lilith's apartment and sift through their fan mail. Raven's momarella breaks in and is like, What the fuck is wrong with you assholes? What are you doing? Why aren't you out there looking for my maybe dead daughter? Lilith is like, She can teleport across dimensions. We don't know where to even start looking. Arella's like, Oh, okay, that's a good point. Sorry about that. Guess I'll just go start looking for her. I'll let myself out. Bye! Later that night, Cyborg stops by the hospital to visit Jericho. The mutton-chopped mutant Marvel is out of his coma and seems to be feeling better. So, that's nice. Donna and Terry finally have a talk about their feelings, after which they both feel better. Weird. After her talk with Terry, Donna decides to put her grief-counseling pants back on and calls Dick with a suggestion. She reckons that the rest of the Titans would probably benefit from talking about their feelings as well. So, the next day, our post-pubescent protagonists all pile into the Titan jet and head back to the same campsite at Grand Canyon that they stayed at during their miniseries. Only this time, instead of staring off into the middle distance and talking about their origins, they're going to stare off into the middle distance and talk about their greatest fears. Huh. I mean... I understand that it might be helpful for them to get some things off their respective chests, but if reading Teen Titans comics has taught me anything, it's that confronting your greatest fears is the sort of activity that's best tackled while inhaling from colorful balloons that have been clandestinely filled with hallucinogenic drugs by a trusted mentor. It's tradition! Despite their apparent dearth of drug balloons, the Titans share what they experienced in the nightmares Trigon subjected them to. Beast Boy shares that he felt guilty that he was unable to prevent the deaths of his many sets of parents, adopted and otherwise. He worries that if he is ever called upon to save the other Titans, he might prove unequal to the task. Cyborg shares that since his robotification, he has embraced his new superheroic identity to a degree that he feels he has neglected the person he used to be before the surgery. Starfire shares that she is happy and well-adjusted. She likes her job as a model and likes helping people as a superhero. She is smart and confident. Well, good for you. I too like to answer the job interview question, what's your biggest weakness, by saying, you know, I think it's that I work too hard and care too much. I think it kind of balances out the fact that I answer the where do you see yourself in five years question by shrieking and hiding under a desk. Lilith confides that she's worried she will only ever be seen as a substitute raven, and also worries that they might never find Raven. Dick brings up the fact that Batman was a really shitty dad, and also, he's been like super busy lately. It's a little evasive, but to be fair, this is like the fourth time he's had to confront his fear of inadequacy, and the third time he's had to do it without drug balloons, so I'm gonna cut the guy some slack. At this point, Terry pipes up, and is like, Hey, thanks for letting me be Donna's plus one on this camping trip. You guys know how I'm a professor of history? Well, it's never come up before, but I'm also a professor of sociology. And as a sociologist, I think teams are important, and you guys are a good team. Sociologically speaking, that is. Also, you're all really young, and it's okay to make mistakes. After Terry's speech, everyone feels much better. They stand around the campfire, chug some Coca-Colas, and take solace in the fact that even though they are young adults hanging around a campfire, it will be ten years before they have to worry about anyone getting out an acoustic guitar and playing Wonderwall. Hooray!
And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am pretty good. How are you? I am doing all right myself. Good. Yeah, it's a lovely October afternoon. Mm-hmm. Been vacillating between rain and shine. As it does. Mm-hmm. That's how you get rainbows, Corey. I saw one on the drive over here. There you go. It was beautiful. There are so many different, like, colloquial terms for when it is raining and sunny out at the same time, and a surprising amount of them around the world are related to different animals marrying each other. I can't think of a single one. What are some examples? They're not particularly common in this part of the world, but it's like, there's like, oh yeah, it's uh, sunny and it's raining. That means a monkey's marrying a giraffe, or like a lady fox is marrying a male kangaroo. Or you something. are making things up. I am not. You can look it up later. We don't have time to, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. That's bizarre. It is. I mean, they're still more pleasant than the common ones that I was familiar with, which is, oh, the devil's beating his wife. What? Yeah, that's an, there are ridiculous <laughs> terms for when it is raining <laughs> and sunny at the same time. We just, we're just a, a binary species. We get confused when it's a mix and match. Yeah, just start making up random nonsense when it's just like, well, I can't wrap my brain around this. Probably something weird's going on. Probably uh, giraffe's gonna marry the devil. Probably. It's unfortunate. They say in that this... lady giraffe deserves better. I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said in this neck of the woods, liquid sunshine, but I think that's just referring to rain. That's just rain in general. Okay. That's just like good old Oregon sunshine. Yeah, that's dumb. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's like only half right. It's liquid, but it's not at all like sunshine. True. Well, Corey, speaking of things that are confusing and sometimes don't make a ton of sense, you want to talk about this comic book? I think we should. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, it had a lot of words. It did. It was nicely drawn. It was. Let's just start with the cover. Okay, let's start with the cover. It is drawn by George Perez, although I'm not sure if it's... It's a different drawing style than we're used to. I think it's either painted or perhaps watercolors. Or painted with watercolors or pastels. It's definitely different. And I do really like it, but it is so different than we are used to seeing from Perez. I, I believe it is probably painted. I was very puzzled by... I, I'm bouncing back and forth between he just sort of forgot how to draw expressions on people's faces, or he's going for something that's, like, really nuanced. Because they're all kind of grinning in that they should be receiving these accolades because there's a big parade for them. Mm-hmm. But they all look kind of pained. I think that is a nuanced thing, and that is kind of what we see their reaction inside the comic book being to the parade. With the exception of Gar, who does just have, like, a shy but shit-eating grin on his face, and also he looks about 12. Mm -hmm. It's a weird look for Gar. And the interior art, which is not by Perez, is also weird on Gar. He looks kind of toddlery in a lot of scenes. Yeah, he's drawn younger. Yeah, I do like the cover. I think, honestly, it's maybe just a style or a medium in which Perez is not as familiar, but it does show his range as an artist, and I think it works, and I think it's good, and I think it conveys the fact that this issue has a very different tone than the ones we've seen recently. 
You mentioned that there were a lot of words. I'm not sure to what extent that is due to a different setup in the creation of the book. Perez is not on the art duties, but he is listed as co-plotter with mm, right. Marv Wolfman, which he has been for this entire run, but normally he is also doing the layouts. And so I'm wondering if perhaps the co-plotting of it was carried out in a different way, because there's a lot of characters vacillating and kind of a lot of back and forth things going on in the plot of the book. And I'm wondering if that is Perez having a more active hand in the scripting of the book now that he is not contributing to the plot through layouts. Mm-hmm. Also, it is just a resetting issue. It's we just finished this big arc. Let's reestablish what the new normal is going forward. So there is a lot of cleanup work to be done in that regard. And I think the issue handles it really well. There's a lot of really fun stuff happening in this. There's a lot of really weird stuff happening in this. The art, as you said, is gorgeous. It's by Dan Jurgens. He's an artist who I was mostly familiar with. I think he's probably best known in the 90s. He was the primary penciler for the Death of Superman story arc. And he also created one of my favorite characters at DC, which is uh, Booster Gold. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. And that was coming out around the same time as this issue. So this is very early work for Dan Jurgens, and I think he does a really good job of it, with a couple of exceptions, which are not really his fault necessarily. In the letters page, it does briefly mention the fact that there was a deadline up against this, and so this was kind of a rush job, and I feel like there were maybe some miscommunications between the art and the writing in a few instances. But overall, it is a gorgeous book, and the fact that Romeo Tangal is the inker helps tie together the art style. It's a really smooth transition. If I didn't know that it wasn't George Perez going into it, I might not have noticed that it wasn't George Perez, which, I mean, sounds like damning Dan Jurgens with faint praise. He definitely does have his own style that he brings to things. But uh, if you can make a seamless transition from George Perez to another person, I think that I intend that as a compliment. Yeah, no, that's a high, high bar. Speaking of which, this is the last issue that George Perez contributes to creatively. No. For a very long time. I think he's still going to be on covers for a little bit, but he's off the book. Well, that's a bummer. It is. Although the next guy is rad as fuck. Mm. It is Jose Luis Garcia Marquez. No, that's not. God damn it. I'm going to need to look up his name. Uh, He's got four names. Titans in the time of cholera. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. It is Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, which... It's my own damn fault, but I can never get that right because I keep wanting to say Gabriel Garcia Marquez Mm -hmm. or Jorge Luis Borges or a lot of different people who have some of those same names in their name. But Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is a phenomenal artist and is one of my favorite artists from this era that we're coming into. So I'm looking forward to that, but it does bum me out that we're not going to get any more Perez art because he's real good at art. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, I liked what he brought to the plotting of these books. We saw kind of a transition from Wolfman having all of the writing chores to Perez kind of taking more of a hand in the writing. And I think it made an improvement in the work. And I am curious as to how the book's going to progress going forward with just Wolfman. And a little nervous. Did you read them when you were a kid? past this point no the last one that i've read before that we've covered was 
a while back, it was, I think, like, Tales of the Teen Titans number 49, something like that. Oh, wow. So, this is all new territory for me. Cool. Yeah. Let's get into the story that we've got here. In the past, we've joked about destination breakups. Yeah. And here they kind of have what looks like it could be heading that way. And I was like, oh, no, it's just a destination talk. And then I was thinking to myself, oh, God, that's awful. Like, whenever anybody tells me we need to talk, I immediately feel nervous and everything. Right. I know. I get that feeling. I think it's intended to be more of like a team building exercise. And like that's a, a, that's a, a corporate a, retreat. Yeah. So that's where I was going with this. And, and I was thinking to myself... Oh, destination talks. That's so stupid. Who would do that? And then I was like, no, that's actually called a retreat. Yeah. That's a thing that people pay lots of money to do and that I have myself participated in for work things. I have not. And I'm very happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. Did you enjoy participating in them for work things? Uh, Parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You get to go somewhere pretty and, you know, eat stuff. Sure. That's always nice. (laughs) Sure. Good to eat food. I'm assuming we're talking about food, sure. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. And and booze. Yeah. Okay. It's the way you said eat stuff made me think maybe like you meant mushrooms or something. Yeah, we did an ayahuasca <laughs> right retreat. I don't know what kind of companies you work for. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a, a step up from just the uh, foosball in the break room. Yeah. No, I I think what was going on with that awkward pause and there may be more is. I have unfortunately reached the uh, the caffeine plateau where you go from it being a useful thing to just kind of screwing up here. <laughs> to just getting a log jam of words and not being able to choose between which one you're going to use? So many. I'm sorry. It's okay. I keep forgetting that you were not with us when we covered the Teen Titans miniseries where they went to the Grand Canyon the first time and talked about their their lives together and each everybody took turns doing their origin story but this is a return to that they went to the grand canyon before did some trust falls had some beers last time they had beers now they've switched to cokes i think it's because in that interim time they raised the drinking age in new york Mm. i might be wrong about the timing on that but it was interesting to see the transition that like oh yeah when we were here before they were Cracking, I think it was champagne and beer, and then Gar had to drink a soda because he was 16, mm-hmm. and they don't like him. And now they're just having Cokes. So that's the other weird thing that I wanted to touch on. Maybe I missed it in the past, but this is the first issue where there was what felt to me like jarring product placement. There definitely was. Um, has, did that, has that happened before? Is that a new... That's a new thing, right? I think it's a new thing. It's I, I think that may Cokes, just be but that right. was just like a offhand. That was free sodas, I free think. Free sodas, right? Yeah. Now we're seeing it's definitely cans of Coke. I think that might just be an art choice. Uh Dan Jurgens is a newer artist, maybe wasn't familiar with that we're not supposed to do that. Um, no, it's so obvious. There's the scene where like they're all sitting or standing around like cheersing the camera with Cokes. And then there's the scene where one's opened and it's got like the little like Jesus sunbeams coming <laughs> out of it. Well, it's a delicious product. It's not that good. <laughs> the other thing that was jarring about their time at the Grand Canyon is Cyborg mentions that he's only been Cyborg for a year. I had not realized there was that kind of time compression going on in these stories. Maybe I did at one point, but I feel like we have read stories within this where I know the vast majority of the arcs are just like, oh, these four issues happened in one day. But we have definitely seen issues where it's like a few months later. Mm -hmm. 
will start will be the start of it. So the fact that this has all been within one year, the 70 some odd issues that we've covered of the new Teen Titans, that's a heck of a thing. It is. I'm also reminded of that. I think of them more so, except for Gar, as adults and not 19 year olds. And <laughs> dang. Well, and I mean, they make the point, I think Wonder Girl says, I keep forgetting how young we are. It's like, yeah. You know what a nice time to remember that might have been? Before you married your professor. Mm-hmm. You know. Still gross. Yeah. Before we move on, the product placement thing was also particularly jarring because a lot of, the, I feel like, what's going on in this issue is them dealing with being, like, productized and monetized as a mm-hmm. result of saving the world and people are trying to sell them all this <laughs> shit or get them to sell shit. Yeah. And then they're like, have a coconut smile at the end. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And it is weird to see that. It, it almost seems like the, the Wayne's World bit where they do the, like, rapid product placement as they're talking about how they don't want to sell out their show. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder maybe if it was intentional. Yeah, maybe. That might be giving it a bit too much credit. But there is some fun stuff in there about the Titans being monetized. I loved both of the scenes of the parade when they just focus on the street vendors that are hawking their homemade Titans products. Mm -hmm. The person who's selling Titans cosplay stuff and Starfire wigs. I love that. I think that's really fun. The guy selling the uh, Wonder Woman headbands trying to pawn him off as Wonder Girl things and the little girl (laughs) correcting him. That was pretty sweet. I really liked the in-joke that followed that, where the bystander is like, oh, they're the same person. They're just changing their their name to avoid the tax collectors. But I feel like that's like, Wolfman remembers the Wonder Girl history, that she was initially the same person as Wonder Woman. And that it was just Bob Haney not realizing that that gave us this character Wonder Girl. Initially, Wonder Girl was like Superboy Wonder Woman when she was younger. He thought that Wonder Girl was Wonder Woman's protege and wrote her like her she was a separate character. And that's why we have Wonder Girl today. No shit. What a happy accident. I, I know. I realized that. Oh, yeah. Huh. I miss Bob Haney's writing. Zany Bob Haney, man. Yeah. He was great. Like, I feel like when they're trying to figure out DC continuity, there are all of these pains to incorporate all of these varying storylines from different era and all of the weird stuff that happened during the Golden Age and the Silver Age of comic books when things had a definitely different tone. And then there's like a whole separate category for like, and then there's Bob Haney. (laughs) He has his own different continuity, except for it contradicts other things that happen within that continuity too. So, okay, then there's Bob Haney. But I really did appreciate that nod to Wonder Girl's origin there. I thought that was a really fun touch. I also like all of the personal marketing that Gar is doing with the gear that he's passing out. I'm sure this will come up later in the sartorially speaking, but the outfit that I'm assuming he gave to Starfire, it's a big picture of Gar in the middle of a ring-style t-shirt, which I like that it's got the rings around the sleeves and the collar. And it says, we love Gar. And then a pair of purple culottes that just have an arrow over the crotch pointing at her genitals, it looks like. Mm-hmm. It... I'm so confused. Like, it's both gross and a non-sequitur in a lot of ways. I said, what? Out loud. <laughs> when I flipped to the page that showed that outfit. I think it kind of ties into the idea of Gar wanting to be, like, 
clever and sexy with banter type stuff, or even gross, but just not understanding how any of it works. I don't know what it's saying. Like, I I really... Is, is it trying to say the we is her and her genitals? Love? Gar? Because it doesn't really work in that context, even, like, as a joke. I just don't get it. And I don't know to what extent Starfire gets it and is like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. It's really weird. The other weird thing about it is that it says, we love Gar and has a picture of his face. Mm-hmm. He paid a marketing firm a million dollars to come up with the name Changeling for him. Now, I know I don't want to use that name because I think it's dumb. I can't believe that he doesn't. He likes that name. If he's trying to market himself as a superhero, why wouldn't he use his code name there? Really play up his superhero-ness. Or if he wants to, like, gain more, like, publicity as an actor, why not use your whole name? Mm-hmm. It's just a bad outfit all around for him. I mean, it's mostly just confuses me. It's okay. It's confusing. Okay. Thank you, Corey. Mm-hmm. What do you think the amnesiac alien angel is doing in Pendleton, Oregon. He's visiting those Keebler treehouse things that apparently we have. What the fuck is up with that treehouse that that guy is living in? It took me forever to figure out that that was even what was happening there. Yeah, it made me want to visit Pendleton because it's like all the good things about taking mushrooms are, <laughs> are happening there, man. Yeah, the, there's a be- some beautiful pink and purple clouds in front of Mount Hood. Mm-hmm. there's a rodeo. I mean, that's not necessarily part of taking mushrooms, and we don't see it there, but that's the only things I know about Pendleton are there's the Pendleton Roundup every year, which is a huge deal, mm-hmm. and there's also, that's where Pendleton whiskey is made, but mm-hmm. that wouldn't have been happening back in 85. That's a newer product. And also, it's a Canadian blend whiskey, so... Too sweet for my yeah, taste. But too sweet for sweet. my taste, too, but for a, for a Canadian blend whiskey, it's actually a pretty good mm-hmm. one. But when he flies by an old Although, man... we'd say something nice about your whiskey if you gave it to us, Hood River Distillery. Change our minds. We're very, very malleable. Let's take a look at those weird tree houses that I think that old man lives in. Yeah, and his wife. And his wife, who is named Maudie. Is that the only old lady name that... It's the only one we got. Well, there's Gert, but she's dead. Mm-hmm. Is Maudie dead? Oh, I hope not. I got that impression from the way that... Wait, Cyborg's Maudie or... Not Cyborg's Maudie, unless it's the same person. Because that was the other thing that occurred to me. I mean, she's a globetrotter. She uh, may just have a sailor in every port, you know? That's how that phrase goes, right? I haven't heard it before, but I it's evocative. Yeah, I didn't mean it to be <laughs> that evocative, necessarily. <laughs> really raised the old eyebrows. Yeah. Well, it raises this old man's eyebrows. He wakes up from his nap because the AAA just flew by him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to have seen the dude, but then when he wakes up, he says, I've seen the angel of death, Marty, Marty. And then we see him leaves his rocking chair, runs inside, and yells Marty with a bunch of question marks and exclamation points, which leads me to believe that Marty might be dead. Oh, I see what you it, mean. It, it looked to me, I don't think that's what it's trying to imply, but... It's difficult for me to not read it as he has seen Maudie, and when he sees her, he is shocked. No, I don't think so, because it's, how do you call it, like the multiplication of exclamation points, or or of uh, question marks is what's happening? Because he says it first with one, then with two, 
And then in the next panel, it's with three. So it's like the increasing the urgency of his question. But there is the interruption of him saying, like, because first it's just, Marty, Marty. And then he starts talking regular and mm. says, I've seen him, Marty. I've seen the angel of death, Marty. That has an exclamation point, but that's it. And then he runs inside. And then there's two question marks with an exclamation point in the middle. That seems like it's a sign of alarm. Maybe so. The other thing is, why the heck does uh, does the angel dude light on their porch for a moment and sink and then fly off? Did he just get tired? I mean, it's a really nice treehouse. Like, this is some Middle Earth looking shit. Mm -hmm. It is an enormous tree that is growing off the side of a cliff that seems to have three or four different treehouses in it. It is an Ewok playset that I want so very badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like no Pendleton I am aware of. Nor I, and it does seem odd. It seems like if there are those structures, they would probably be lived in by hippies or, as I said, Ewoks. Now, we don't know who Maudie is. I'm assuming by her name and her association with this older gentleman that she is an older person. Maybe Maudie is a hippie and he is her grandfather who is visiting her in her Ewok village. Kind of a lot of speculation Or maybe she about... is an Ewok. And she is friends with an old man who is going to teach her the spirit of Christmas. Um, there are a lot of options. We really don't know anything about Maudie other than she is somehow associated with this old gentleman and a source of alarm. Maybe he forgot that she was an Ewok and then when he went inside he was like, Maudie, you're an Ewok! I think you should drink some booze to counteract the coffee that you had. <laughs> it's a strong possibility. <laughs> We also briefly see the return of Sarah Charles, the uh, physical therapist who was treating Cyborg. Oh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Charles. Yeah. She is now treating Jericho, who's not doing so hot. Mm -mm. I mean, he's better from his coma than I guess he was in, but he's still not able to join the rest of the team at the Grand Canyon, or they didn't invite him. They're like, you know what? We've decided your superpower is creepy AF. Yeah, and you really jump-started this whole Raven problem with your lack of understanding of the very core concept of consent. Mm -hmm. So, no trust falls for you. Fair is fair. Speaking of Titans who are not invited to the parade or the Grand Canyon, Wally West. Fuck that guy. <sighs> He's being a manipulative fucking turd in this issue. He did not tell his parents that he was fighting Trigon. Which is fine. They were worried about him. I don't necessarily support that decision, but I get it. But then he keeps dumping his whole emotional load onto Francis Kane. And he keeps bringing up the idea that her problem with him is about the fact that um, I'm totally not in love with Raven. Which he really demonstrated that he still had very complex feelings for her in the last issues. And Francis doesn't believe him about that. But also it seems like there are bigger problems than that. Immediately when she is just like, I don't know if I can deal with this. He's like, oh, so you're just going to leave me when I need you the most? Fuck you, dude. <laughs> Big old turd bag. Also, it kind of seems like Dan Jurgens is in our camp with this because he draws Wally looking like a dick in this issue. I mean, not physically like a penis, <laughs> but he gives him a real Habsburg chin that makes him look aristocratic and mean in a way that we're not used to seeing Wally look. And it kind of suits the timber of what he's saying and his level of self-absorption that he would be like an aristocratic stuck-up jerk. I, I might be reading too much into that, 
I noticed, I noticed his chin. Doesn't he just look like a jerk more than he normally does? Yeah, I felt bad for Francis in this one, too. Yeah. He's being a He's, yeah. garbage person. He makes it seem like it was his choice to not join them on the parade. I think he was not invited. Yeah, no. Mayor Koch has your spot, dude. <laughs> I'm surprised Mayor Koch didn't try to dress up in some kind of a superhero outfit to join them. That would have been cool. Would it have? Sure. <laughs> I also was a little bit confused about who exactly is on Mayor Koch's staff, because this is one of the things I was talking about with there maybe being a disconnect between the art and the writing in this. There is a shadowy figure in a fedora and trench coat who was surveying the Titan Tower with the Titans and telling them that they could not get their funding for it from the city the way that Ed Koch had promised them a few pages ago. It seemed like that was a setup for a big reveal of who this guy really is. It's not. He's just some flunky for the mayor. Yep. Doing an assessment job. Floats off on the raft and Cyborg yells at him. And Did you keep waiting for him to be revealed as, I don't know, Ocean Master or Mr. Jupiter or Godzilla or Ben Grimm or somebody? Or like three smaller creatures standing on each other's shoulders wearing something, a trench coat and fedora. Something. The fact that his face was so obviously obscured during that exchange was really confusing to me and was setting up this anticipation and then there was no payoff for it. Maybe that's what uh, Jurgens thinks construction estimators dress like. <laughs> yeah, just shadowy dark figures mm. that are spies probably. Yeah, like... And maybe a shrunken Godzilla. Private eye by day, construction estimator by afternoon. Mmm, that sounds like a good movie. Pretty good. <laughs> As part of the Titans media blitz, we get testimonials from some of their, not necessarily mentors, but more established adult heroes. And there's an interesting arc of how they are presented. First, we have Superman, interviewed by the press, and just saying, Hey, I've always believed in these Titans. They're good kids. They're smart, strong heroes. I'm proud of them, and I'm not surprised they did a great job. Glowing endorsement. Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman is next interviewed. Her stance is basically, yeah, the Titans are great, and you guys are all sexist all the time. Amazons aren't sexist. We think everybody should be judged equally regardless of their race or age or sex. I'm like, oh, um, I mean, she's not wrong. Mm -hmm. It also did not come up in the question. There was a Democratic debate the other day, which I listened to some of, um, and I don't want to get into the politics of it. It did amuse me when I believe it was Cory Booker mentioned twice, apropos of nothing, the fact that he's a vegan. It reminded me of that. I was surprised he didn't bring up that he did CrossFit. I was just going to say, it's only a matter of time for the CrossFit shoe to drop. <laughs> and then we get Aquaman, who his testimonial is basically, I guess they did a good job. Look, we were busy. Yeah. Sorry, it couldn't be there. <laughs> but we were busy. One of the things I talked about earlier was some inconsistencies with characters or them kind of flip-flopping back and forth. Arella does that pretty hard in this issue. She breaks into Lilith's apartment where the Teen Titans are hanging out, mm -hmm. says that she let herself in. First of all, that's just a wild move for her to make. Then she starts yelling at all of them 
about how they don't care about Raven and why aren't they looking for her. And the Titans are just like, uh, we tried to look for her. We don't have anything to go on. Should we just do a random knock on apartment doors or, or what? And Arella immediately is just like, you're right. You're doing everything you can. I'm just angry. And they're like, well, we could look harder. She's like, no, 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 you don't need to look harder. You guys are great. You did a great job murdering my daughter. I'm glad that you did. You helped her as much as you could. And now I'm leaving. It was a confusing switcheroo. And it was within like the space of a page. Mm -hmm. It is a wild stance for her to take too, that she watched these people. Yes, it was the corrupted versions of the Titans literally murder her daughter. And then it's just like, you did everything you could to help her. It also raised a point that I was a little bit unsure on. Do you think the Teen Titans know that they killed Raven? They didn't have any memory of that happening when they were in their, like, eviled up forms. Yeah, I don't think so. Lilith watched them. Do you think she didn't tell them? No, I don't think so. It would be kind of keeping in character for her. Yeah, I mean, no, she, that's her policy. Yeah, right? she came up in the Mr. Jupiter era of the Titans where if one of us commits murder, which came up a surprising amount, mm -hmm. we just will never tell them. Yeah. No, don't, don't say anything. I feel like it might come up on their ayahuasca retreat in the Grand Canyon. That's true. She hasn't really had her chance to spill the beans, has she? No. So, I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing that they switched to colas up there mm. instead of uh instead of getting a little boozy there could be some dramatic fallout if the uh titans take a in vino veritas mm -hmm. approach to the situation true just a rapid escalation a cascade of like you got possessed and strangled a cat well you murdered a fisherman <laughs> well it's like wait what i did I'm not, what i'm not even here <laughs> That also pissed me off that they didn't invite him out to the Grand Canyon. After all the work he and his whale friend did. Yeah. So each of the Titans at the end gets a little soliloquy about what they experienced when they were having nightmares, what issues they're facing. And it seems like it is almost a just like, okay, everybody step forward, tell us your biggest problem and a little bit about yourself. They, they all have that moment. Wonder Girl steps forward and is just like, look, I do need to talk about this with you guys. I didn't want to, but I saw some dark shit when I faced my evil side. I thought I was going to be responsible for Terry's death. I watched myself kill my husband. It was really traumatic. And Beast Boy steps forward and is like, yeah, I saw some dark shit too. Um, I, I joke around a lot, but uh, I still feel bad about killing the people who killed my parents, one set of my parents. Um, I feel like I'm responsible for my parents' death and Doom's Patrol's death. And I saw myself killing you guys and everyone that I've ever cared about. And it was horrible. And then Starfire steps forward and she was like, I'm great. I love people. When people say nice things about me, it makes me happy. And I like that I make them happy by them saying nice things about me. And I love you guys, and I just want to be supportive, and I'm wonderful all the time, and I'm great. She was a real ray of sunshine. I mean, literally, she has solar-based powers, and she used them to uh, start a campfire, which was fun, too. Yep. And then Dick steps forward with his dark monologue, and he says, Got a lot of unpacking to do. Uh, I'm pretty rich. Batman's a dick. Yeah, I, uh, 
I guess I lost my job in a, with the circus and you guys never got to see the circus? Yeah, I've got an apartment. I kind of wish I spent more time there. Really need to do some unpacking. I mean, not metaphorically. I mean, literally. I've been really busy. Yeah. And that's pretty much <laughs> it. <laughs> Cyborg also has like a really like revealing, very dramatic monologue that he does. He does the pose like he's holding Yorick's skull. And he like also just does a thing where he hunches himself forward dramatically at the end. It's very drama club looking. But he gives a little speech about how it took him so long to adjust to the fact that he is now a cyborg. And he's finally come to terms with that. But now he doesn't know how to be the human side of himself anymore. And that scares him. And it's a really moving sentiment, which makes Dick's little speech about how he really needs to unpack his apartment. And it really underlines that a little bit. It's kind more. of funny. He's like, the Batman raised me to never talk about my feelings. I've been so busy and I need to unpack. <laughs> Let's keep fighting crime. Yeah. The Batman told me to never talk about my feelings. So I won't. <laughs> I think that's a good policy. There's a fun reference on the first page. First of all, just the first page is really fun. It's a newspaper headline that has the title page. It says Titan Mania, which is both the headline on the newspaper and the name of the issue. And the picture under it is an older picture of the Teen Titans when Robin was still Robin and not Nightwing, and Kid Flash was still with the team, and there is a pasted picture in the corner of it of Jericho looking sad, mm -hmm. which I think it's funny that that's the one that they chose to go with. The other fun thing about that is that the person reading the newspaper says, oh, this is an old picture. It's got Kid Flash with the group, and it's back when Robin used to be with them. Now they've got this new guy. What's his name? Flamebird? Flamebird. Mm-hmm. That's a fun little joke because the name Nightwing, I don't know if you remember, we talked about this when he chose the name, was the name that Superman went by when he dressed up like Batman to fight crime without any superpowers inside the bottled city of Kandor. Silver Age stuff. Flamebird was the name that Jimmy Olsen went by when he dressed up as Superman as Batman's sidekick. So Flamebird was the equivalent of Robin. Got it. In that. So... It's a weird, complicated little in-joke that it starts off with, but I thought that was kind of a fun touch. Dang. Well, there's a ton more to talk about, but I think a lot of it will come up in the minutia. You ready to move on into the minutia? Sure. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, in this issue, as in every issue of a Teen Titans comic book, there is a best Teen Titan, the Aqualad, and there is a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Beast Boy? Well, strangely enough, my Beast Boy was Beast Boy because everybody had a pretty similar role in going to their retreat and telling their story, and so he did fine with that. Mm -hmm. But And I know it's supposed to be because he's 16 and we're supposed to think it's cute or funny, but... He makes a joke in there about his leftovers being shared with Cyborg. And the leftovers yeah. in that context are, uh, you know, potential Herpes. sexual partners that arose out of his fame. And I get where they're going, or it was the 80s or whatever, but it it's gross. It's ah. I also had Beast Boy as my Beast Boy. For that, 
for him being dismissive of Aqualad and Aquagirl and their whale friend's effort to clean up the Titan Tower for him. They deposit some of the detritus on the island and he's like, great, just what we need, more garbage. Aqualad's like, you asked me to do this for you. He also vacillates wildly within the issue about whether he wants to talk about his problems when they're on the retreat. He's very hesitant. He's like, no, we don't need to talk about anything. I'll make you some hot dogs. He's really excited for all the fame, but then at the very end, and not until the very end, he's like, yeah, I never really wanted all that fame. But there's nothing to really support that. And also, he did what I talked about before with a bad job of personal marketing. If he wants the changeling brand to take off this would have been his opportunity and he made those weird shorts and gave them to starfire which are both inappropriate and incomprehensible bad job beast boy conversely who did you have as your aqualad well aqualad did show up and i feel like when he does that and does something nice he kind of automatically gets it but he was such a small portion of the overall story that Although, technically, I guess he gets it because he's Aqualad. I, I did want to give it, actually, to Donna. Oh. Because despite her vacillating also wildly, I feel like she turned a really important corner, which is understanding, finally, the importance of fucking disguises. Yes. She brings up the fact that, oh, boy, Everybody knows who I am, and I may be fucked up with that. That's going to make things bad for Terry. Finally. Yeah, that was a really big, important decision that she did come by. I understand that's a really good choice for her. She was in the conversation for me. I ultimately decided to go with Starfire. She was great. She was great. She, When she could tell that Donna was upset, she was like, hey, it seems like you need to talk about this. And Donna's like, no, I'm fine. And she's like, no, actually, you aren't fine. And I can tell that you're not fine. And I think that you really need to talk about this. You're the one who's already always advocating for difficult conversations. And when you're ready to talk, I'll be there. I'll always be there for you. And she had her great speech about the fact that she's great. And when people like her, it makes her feel good. And she likes to make people feel good. There was another thing that she talked about, too, that I appreciated the irony of how she's always drawn nonwithstanding, which is that there's nothing wrong with being pretty. Yeah. And and she's happy to be beautiful, but that that doesn't define her. And she knows that people see her that way, and that's cool, and she can use that for modeling because she enjoys it, but she does that for her. Yeah. No, yeah. it's it's great. She is such a well-balanced and uh, well-adjusted character, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I appreciated that about her. I did also want to give an honorable mention in this to Cyborg, Because he mentions that he's been going to therapy. And I think that's great. And especially back in like the mid 80s, there was a stigma attached to that more so than there is now, I think. But I think we've both benefited from seeing therapists in the past. And so as a mental health advocate in a popular media form, I I think that Cyborg did a really good job. And I'm, I'm proud of him for really working on himself and making progress in that regard Mm -hmm. and for not being ashamed to share that with his friends yeah totally that's so true what you're saying about that because i feel like the only references i can remember to talk therapy in the 80s were in the context of uh, it getting made fun of in movies yeah and like Mm -hmm. can you believe these yuppie wusses Mm -hmm. always talking to their therapists yeah 
And so, yeah, great job, Cyborg. Ooh, this is a rough one. Sartorially speaking, there is so much fashion in this issue. We've already talked at great length about Fire. Starfire's camping outfit, courtesy of Beast Boy. But in addition to that, there is, on page 12, we have three different Titans sporting some very distinct, very stylish looks, which I wanted to talk about. Starfire is wearing a disco jumpsuit dress. It's a sleeveless white dress with a high popped collar that is just a very distinctive look. Lilith is wearing a mauve paisley mini dress with a black vest and thigh-high boots. Which appear to be made out of maybe denim? I was thinking that too. And uh, Dick is sporting a good look. He's basically wearing blue jeans, a black t-shirt, and a leather jacket, I think. Possibly a windbreaker. His is less distinctive than the others, but man, Starfire and Lilith have some very intense outfits going on there. I wanted to, to comment on the bathing suit that uh, Jillian's wearing in the preceding page. She is wearing a, a very nice bathing suit. Also, we see that Beast Boy is wearing a tiny little Speedo. Mm -hmm. But yeah, why don't you describe Jillian's bathing suit? It's like a Jane Fonda 80s leotard top, like super high cut above the hips, mm -hmm. one piece. But it's also just got one shoulder strap. Yeah, it's got the singlet like you're used to seeing on, say... Tarzan or Andre the Giant. Mm -hmm. But it's also the color scheme, It the way that it swoops down, the it's pink, but with, then with a white and blue stripe that accompany the flow of the, the contours where there is the single strap. It looks kind of like the Aquafresh logo. Mm -hmm. Very 80s. Very 80s. There is also, I wanted to discuss the look that hopefully Bethany Snow's replacement Leona Walters is wearing for Wubs. She is all decked out in Teen Titans gear in a way that seems a little bit inappropriate as a journalist. I know she's covering a celebratory event, but she's wearing a headband that says Teen Titans. She's holding a pennant that says I heart the Teen Titans. She is wearing a Teen Titans windbreaker that has buttons that say Titans forever and Mike Price loves Starfire. Don't know who Mike Price is. I was hoping you could answer that. I cannot. I tried to look it up, and I do not know. But whoever he is, he hearts Starfire. Leona Walters was also part of a very confusing exchange for me when she interviewed Dick a couple pages later. We don't see what question she asked, which was part of what took me out of it. But she's only introduced as Leona Walters on the very first page, and then several pages later. And Dick's answer to some question is, Leona, Raven, her mother, Arella, and Lilith had more to do with defeating Trigon than we did. I read that twice. I read that more than twice where I was like, wait, is Leona Raven's real name? Because I had forgotten that there was a character named Leona. And so it's Leona, comma, Raven, comma, her mother, comma, Arella, comma, and Lilith. And I was like, what? Yeah, my, What's happening? My grammar's not great, but I think I wanted a semicolon after her name to just help me parse that sentence. Or like a double dash you could you could put there. It it just flummoxed me. It's a really minor point, but like I was it really did make me question for a second whether Raven's real name was Leona, and I had missed that for like almost 70 issues. 
Yeah, yeah, that threw me for a minute too. Uh, and then just one last bit of fashion to chat about in the parade scene on that that opening panel. There is a very nicely dressed policeman. He looks like he's wearing a members only jacket. And he's got a, a very thin tie and uh, like a really cool helmet with giant, giant mirrored uh, goggle visor. Thing. It is a really nice look. I wonder if that is his parade uniform. Yeah, it's like elastic around the waist and around the collar, but it is like in police colors. It's a, it's a good look for him. On the same page, we see that Lilith is looking very shy as she stands on the float with the other Titans. But she's wearing her same outfit that she was wearing when they fought Trigon, which made me wonder if that is her official superheroing outfit, which is kind of a weird choice, or if she hadn't gotten a chance to go home and change, or if she just didn't have any other clothes because they were in the Titans Tower when it blew up. But we do see her wearing other clothes later. I wonder if maybe she had to borrow those from Starfire, and at first she was too shy to ask. It's like the Mahdi or the Ewok, we will never know. I choose to believe that that old man is married to an Ewok. Okay. One more brief sartorial note. We see that the uh, alien amnesiac angel has added underpants to his outfit. So, Thank good, good for him. I don't think Pendleton would have received him so warmly had he not. That's been my experience in Pendleton. <laughs> Going uh, commando is frowned upon. Or I mean, if... Commando and pantsless. Yes. <laughs> This should be a pretty quick category, but what was your favorite sound effect? I only could find two on page 12. I had the same ones. We got a crunch and a slam. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which one did you prefer? I went with uh, the young Woody Harrelson's camera getting crunched by an angry cyborg. I went with the same one. The slam was Gar hanging up on his agent, which he said felt good to do after that agent had not gotten him work for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's it for sound effects. Yep. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you feel was worthy of highlight? Double. That is a terrible air horn, Corey. Let's try. No, no. Corey has spent the last 10 minutes downloading an app because he accidentally erased his air horn app because, oh, that's great. That one's a little bit better. <laughs> okay. I'll Beast Boy calls his agent a bozo. There's two. Oh, yeah? What was the other one? And a couple more bozos, like Dr. Light. Ah, that's right. So it's a double bozo issue. Yeah, double 90B. Pretty good. Pretty, Pretty good. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. On a side note, I also liked that when Gar is asking for the microphone, that cyborg said he would rather give it to Brother Blood. Ouch. Yeah. Zing. Ouch. Corey, did you have a timestamp in this issue? I did. I had a couple. There were quite a few of them, actually. I had three. What were they? Well, uh, we already mentioned uh, Maricotch, mm-hmm. so that was one. Uh, the other one is Beast Boy making a, a joke about how they let anybody act as an extra on the love boat. Uh-huh. And that was a big show back then. And then the last one was on page 14, and it was a reference to uh, Cabbage Patch dolls, which were all the rage. I had those. I also had uh, Cyborg being asked if he was dating Brooke Shields. Mm-hmm. And 
One that I wasn't entirely sure of, but the cans of Coke that they are drinking. The release of this issue is around the time when New Coke came out. And I think this is before, but they had perhaps started the advertising push for it. Because they're drinking cans that are labeled Coke instead of Coca-Cola in the fancy scrawl. Mm -hmm. Which is, it looks like a can of New Coke. But when he's reaching for it in the cooler, it looks like the traditional Coca-Cola scrawl. So I was wondering if that was like maybe a redrawing in anticipation of the new Coke being revealed. I know it was released early in New York, which is where this comic was produced. Potentially a timestamp, not entirely sure of that. Interesting. Yes, I spent far too much time looking up stuff about new Coke. Mm. What was your favorite panel? I like the panel of uh, everybody sitting around talking at their, their destination chat. And it's right at the point where Terry Long basically jumps in and says, you people mind if I say something? And what I love about this panel is Lilith is doing this total like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like she's looking at everybody else and gesturing at Terry. I don't think it's intentionally drawn that way. Yeah, it, I agree. It is also weird that when they are all sitting around like that, there is a campfire. They are not sitting around the campfire. That is off to the side. One other fun touch about that panel, we see that Gar is wearing Velcro, perhaps having difficulty tying his shoes. The other thing I noted too about Velcro is it appears that everybody except for Donna is wearing and Cyborg, of course, is wearing uh, Velcro shoes. No, they were very popular. I used to wear Velcro shoes. It took me a long time to figure out how to tie my shoes properly. Mm. Like, probably like fifth grade, something like that. Oh. Yeah. But I can now. Good. I'm really good at it. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. The first rabbit makes his hole, and he runs around the tree, then he goes into the hole. That's how you tie then... a tie. That's not how you tie a tie. There are no rabbits involved in a Windsor knot. I was uh, taught the Windsor rabbit knot. Oh, we'll have to compare techniques on tie-tying later. Okay, maybe we'll do a tutorial as a uh, sartorially speaking follow-up. Okay. I'm sure people <laughs> would love to see that. Well, we are fashion icons. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite panel, and there were a bunch to choose from, but I'm going to go with the cyborg monologue, where we just see him posing dramatically so many times, like reaching one hand clasped up into the air at the beginning of it and then emoting so hard and then looking dejected and upset but with these movement signs showing how emphatically he is gesturing as he is delivering his monologue about him trying to come to terms with himself it is funny but it is also beautifully drawn and he really looks so dynamic and really nicely drawn cyborg on that Got the Grand Canyon in the background and those cool Perez-type clouds. Mm -hmm. The other panel that was in contention for me was on page 9, and it is where you see all of the people cosplaying as Titans. There's a lady dressed up as Starfire and a little kid dressed up as Cyborg, and just all of this stuff going on in the background around the Titans, and it's just a really fun scene. It's the one where the guy's selling Starfire wigs. And he does a really nice job of showing that it is not an accurate wig. Like, drawing a bad wig in a comic book, I feel like, is really hard. And he does a really good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bad wig. Yeah. Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Mm -hmm. In the year of our Lord, 1986, 
and the month of our Lord, May. What was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! Well, Aqualad has been obsessed with the magic flute. The... Mozart. Oh, my mind immediately went to the Smurfs cartoon. He also likes the Smurfs, but yeah, no, he's been really obsessed with with the magic flute. Huh. And so he decides to combine a little vacation time uh, sightseeing in the Adriatic Sea. Ooh. With a little trip, bicycle trip, actually. Ooh. You know, brought plenty of water to stay hydrated. Up, you know, came out of the sea, got his bicycle, checked out Croatia, up through Slovenia, and finally to Austria. Oh. Where Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart spent his final years. Wrote a lot of music there. One of the other reasons that he wanted to go, not just because of his obsession recently with the magic flute, was also, we've talked before about his pen palmanship, mm -hmm. where he's got correspondence with folks all over the globe. Sure. Worldly young man that he is. Uh, there's a certain Johann Holzel, who is actually the best-selling German-language musician of all time, who we here in the States know by the name Falco. Oh! So he was spending a lovely May afternoon in a cafe regaling Falco with his love of the magic flute, which gave Johann this idea of Amadeus, 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 rock me, Amadeus. And uh, yeah, there was some like kind of kind of repetitive techno music playing in the background of the cafe, and Aqualad just kept repeating Amadeus, Amadeus. <laughs> and there we have the hit single. Wow, good for him. Interestingly enough, on his way home, Aqualad made a pit stop in England to visit the Mad Mod, who Again. was a re reformed villain. Just wanted to thank him for the job he did helping the. Pope and the Dalai Lama squashed their beef earlier. Right. And he stopped in for a little bit, and then he saw a thing. There was a very popular music video at the time called The Chicken Song. <laughs> the video for which featured the spitting image puppets. Do you remember those guys? Ronnie and Nancy. Those were the American ones. They also had British politicians. It was this horrific puppets that did political satires that also had a nonsense song that was the number one hit in the UK in May of 1986. Aqualad saw these, and he got freaked the fuck out. Understandably Naturally. so. Yeah. These are some horrifying puppets. And he swam across the ocean as fast as he could wow. to go back to New York. Because he, he wanted no part of those creepy puppets. On his way, there was a man who was rowing a boat named Reginald Hofstetter... <laughs> And Aqualad capsized his boat. And Hofstetter's out in the middle of the ocean. Fortunately, Hofstetter, very good at treading water. So he was able to tread water for a very long time. Aqualad, back in New York, is like, okay, you know what? Feeling better. I'm, I'm going I'm to go see a movie, try to calm my nerves. He went and saw Top Gun. And he thought the movie was okay. Mm -hmm. But he loved the soundtrack. He just got super into Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. Oh, and he got really amped, and he's just like, you know what? I'm going to confront my fear. I'm going to go back to England and face those scary, scary puppets. And so he zoomed back across the Atlantic Ocean. And on his way, he capsized Reginald Hofstetter's boat again. Oh, Hofstetter geez. was about to climb back into it. Oh, man. Missed his opportunity. It's like, oh, guess I'm treading water some more. Aqualad, 
gets to England. He's not ready to confront those puppets. He goes home, capsizes the again. boat again. Reginald Hofstetter ended up treading water for 985 hours. Oh, poor Reginald. Yeah, set the record. I think that was probably what he was after. And uh, he probably glossed over the part where it was involuntary. Mm. And also probably glossed over the part where he wasn't probably just in a pool somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that is what Aqualad was probably up to in May of 1986. Setting records and making hits. Mm -hmm. Not making friends. Mm -mm. Not with Reginald Hofstetter anyway. Oh, with Falco. But with Falco, yes. Well, thanks for joining us, Corey. You're welcome. Thanks so much for joining us with this fun adventure. Whee! Yeah! If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to visit us on Tumblr or Facebook or Instagram, which Lisa runs, or LinkedIn or any other facet of the internet, we're all up in the internet's nooks and its crannies like it was a Thomas's English muffin. They got a lot of nooks and crannies. I remember the ad campaign. You're making a face like you think it's gross. Do you that not like English muffins? Or no, were you just... trying to sexualize the English muffin? Uh, neither. I okay. was just imagining us then being the butter. Or... Yeah, I guess we'd be do the butter. That okay. would be what would spread. I mean, marmalade, maybe? Hmm. I think I'm more marmalade because I'm sweet, but I'm some, somewhat bitter. You're sassy. <laughs> yeah. Like marmalade. Like marmalade. Yeah. Uh -huh. What kind of preserve would you be, Corey? Oh, man. Like a quince spread? What are you saying, sir? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm bitter as hell. No, I was saying that, uh, you know, you're old school. The quince was the original fruit that was uh, referenced in the uh, Bible. Full of vitamin C. Uh-huh. It was not an apple, but a quince. I always uh, thought it was a pomegranate for some reason. I think that's Demeter. When Persephone went to uh, Hades... I think that's the pomegranate myth. I always get them mixed up. As do we all. But you're evading the question, what kind of preserve would you be I don't... if you were spread on an Thomas's English muffin, I don't know, Corey? Man. I don't know. Um, maybe, uh, uh, I don't know why it's such a difficult, I can't uh, think of it, what I would be. Try harder. Maybe uh, marshmallow fluff. Wrong. You'd be lemon curd. Lemon curd is delicious. Yeah, I know. You're welcome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to donate to us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a ton of bonus material. Uh, I've been making a lot of little videos where I review classic comics. This month, I've been focusing on Halloween-themed stuff, and it's been pretty fun. So if you'd like to check that out, uh, go to patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with Lisa called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And uh, yeah, you should check that out. And if you can kick us down a couple bucks, I would really appreciate that. And I think that's about all I got to say. Unless you want to leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast device you're using. Do you have a favorite podcasting uh, application you use, Corey? I use um, both Stitcher and Spotify to listen to podcasts. Oh, those are fun. Uh, yeah, why don't you guys leave us a review on one of those? Or iTunes is, you know, classic. I don't think it's called iTunes anymore. It's now like People know what Apple you mean. Podcast Friendster. But, you know... 
whatever iTunes is calling itself. Got some nice reviews there. We're up to 140 reviews. Wow. Thank you, everybody that left a review. That yeah, is I, I really, really appreciate cool. that. It, it makes a difference. It helps people find the show. And uh, our number of listeners has been growing lately, which is exciting for me. Yay. So if you're a new listener, thanks. And this is a weird one to start with. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Aboard. Yeah. Dude, there was picket signs in this issue and we didn't even talk about them. What did the picket signs say? I missed them. uh, We love Gar. There's penance. There is picket signs on page four and on page nine. Oh, one says, Corey, superstar. Corey, Corey. That's why you wanted those brought to attention. They misspelled your name, but still. You like picket signs. I do, and I like Corey. Bye, guys. Bye. And they knew it. you ever see the movie How High? Uh, it's Red Man? Method Red Man? Man and Method Man, they go to Harvard. I remember it. I don't remember and if I've seen it. And they have magic weed that when they smoke it, they can talk to a ghost friend. And he answers questions for them. That's why they did so good on their SATs. They, uh-huh. sweep, they cheated by smoking magic weed that let them talk to a ghost. Wow. It's pretty good. I bet when that movie came out, they were pissed that the name High Spirits was already taken. You ever see High Spirits? No. Steve Gutenberg, uh, Daryl Hannah romantic comedy. Oh, there's no... It's very fun. Weed ghosts? No, there's just regular ghosts. Daryl Hannah's a ghost, and then she <clears throat> has sex with Steve Gutenberg. Oh. And Liam Neeson's in it, too. He's oh, really? also a ghost. Does he punch a wolf? No. He has sex with Steve Gutenberg's wife. <laughs> wow yeah it's a hell of a movie yeah, dr strange would like that movie <laughs> <laughs> he totally would <laughs> like well they're not enough flames but i do appreciate all this ghost fucking pretty mm. good nasty little ghost hot mm. <laughs> <laughs> in summation high spirits pretty good all right